Welcome to another of our Murthy teleconference series. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I have two of my brilliant colleagues here with me today, attorney Dana DeLott and Brian Green. Uh, some of you may have heard Dana from before. She's been with the firm almost 10 years now, uh, has another 10 years experience before that, so she is really our senior attorney on hand. Uh, Brian Green, who's been doing a lot of the uh, investigations and audits work, as well as litigation and writs of mandamus, as well as general stuff. Today's teleconference, the topic is trends involving consular processing for H1L1 visas and other non-immigrant visas. We also want to thank attorney Senthil Kumar from Chennai, India, for having provided us some of the information the latest cutting-edge information from Chennai uh, to our office. He, Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited, uh, is an affiliate of the Murthy Law Firm, or the Murthy Law Firm as most Indians know it. Um, and we suggest that maybe you want to contact him at murthyindia.com for uh, any issues dealing with people being stuck at the consulates in India. So... Let's remember that one of the basic Rule 101 whenever you're going to an embassy or consulate abroad is to check the website of that specific consulate that a person plans to visit. Each consulate office obviously has different procedures, and these constantly change, so keeping up to date with those changes would be a great way to get started. Dana, can you share with us some of the general trends that have been happening in the world of non-immigrant visas or NIVs? Yes, Sheila. And as many of our listeners know, there's been increased security uh, of visa applications for non-immigrant visas. There's always been close scrutiny, uh, but this has increased uh, significantly, as, again, many, many of our listeners know. And this is especially an issue for consulting company, IT consulting company employees. And that is tied in a general sense to the recession, but really primarily to the uh, January 2010 Newfield memo that many people are also familiar with or have been uh, touched by. That memo, uh, again, published in January 2010, stated that consulting companies who were filing H-1 petitions needed to prove that there was a valid employer-employee relationship and that they had to prove this by showing that they had a right to control their H-1 consultants placed at third-party client sites, which is how it normally works with, with people being placed at the end clients. And this memo has essentially bled over into the adjudications of the visa applications at the consulates. And as a result, we're seeing uh, increased frequency of petitions being returned to the USCIS for investigations uh, and then later issuance of a notice of intent to revoke. And at the consular level, the increased issuance of 221G requests uh, asking for additional documents and then delaying the cases. I know. It's kind of a real nightmare. It's really annoying. Um, and as any person, whether you're applying for an H-1B, H-4, L-1, L-1B, or even the L-2, and we'll get into even the dependents later on. But, Brian, I know there's been increased scrutiny of NIV applications, the non-immigrant visa applications, and I know you do a lot of the on audits and investigations, and you've been doing that work for several years now. Uh, can you describe and explain what the factors may be for the increase in audits Sure, Sheila. Thank you for mentioning that the investigations have been going on for a time, 
And we first saw these investigations more in the United States where there were fraud detection national security officers going from company to company checking on petitions. That has now bled over, and the State Department officers who are in charge of issuing or denying visas overseas are also actually taking this trend farther, and they're looking into issues of benching, um, work locations, fraud issues at the consulates and embassies when they're doing the visa interviews. Okay. And so what we're finding is that there is much more of the fraud investigation, that possibly the high unemployment and the economy is adding to all of this because there's a concern about being overly protective of the U.S. worker, which makes sense, except that there is a true shortage. Uh, In every seminar I go with technology people or conference, the thing that they all point out is, yes, there's unemployment, but yes, we're also desperate for highly skilled technology, technical kind of workers, which is why people, companies are still sponsoring H-1s. And it yeah. doesn't really, in some ways what I've seen lately is that it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense when they're asking for these same levels of documents that were just submitted to the USCIS. I, I get phone calls from people where it was just approved. They show up at the consulate, and the consulate's reviewing the whole thing all over again. And that's why it's very important to take with you to the consulate the entire package, not just the original H-1 petition, but if there was an RFE or a notice of intent to deny, take the response that you or your lawyer or the company prepared, because that will have all of the additional documents and information that the government examiner is truly in doubt about. So by carrying that information, you will hopefully preemptively prevent uh, an extensive denial or revocation request for the visa. Brian, let's continue with you. Can you describe a little bit about the entire January 8, 2010 Newfelt memo? No, we've talked about it. Most people are familiar, but sometimes uh, you can never hear enough about it because we're still people are being harassed. And even yesterday, when I was talking with clients on the phone, they were telling me how they that out of everybody that entered in Newark, New Jersey, uh, this is now. Now I'm not talking January 2010. I'm talking November, December 2010. This month, where they are sending people back on H1s and H4s, saying to them, "We're not convinced that it's legitimate or there's potential fraud issues that we thought had been put to rest for a while." So can you go over a little bit of the implications of that memo, Brian? This is another bleed over where the memo from January 2010, it's actually a USCIS memorandum, so it does not control the U.S. Department of State that runs the embassies and consulates. But the embassies and consulates on their own have gone ahead and taken this memo and started to pursue some of the problems raised in the memo and looking for some of the evidence of control. And they're really looking for daily control. They're looking for how is the employer, what manager is actually working with these H-1B or these L workers on a daily basis. How is their work tracked? How is their work being graded or their performance being evaluated? And the best way to get ready for or try to avoid these problems is to to do an excellent job and preparing the petition for USCIS and answering all of those potential questions that the January memo can put to you. If you do that, and as Sheila said, if you take all of those documents, responses with you to the consulate, the consulate is supposed to honor the USCIS approval, but they have their own discretion. And what we've seen in this recent trend is that they are looking into those documents and they're specifically asking the worker, are you going to be placed at workplace X? And if the worker is not prepared to talk about, yes, my end client is going to be X company, but I'll be reporting back to my manager, those uh, lack 
of those lack of details can cause either a long 221G delay. It can cause the consular officer to ask for lots more documents that he is looking for to satisfy that memo from 2010, or it could result in a denial of the petition or the visa application. Absolutely. And, and really, and part of what we say to people is really try to provide all of that regular documentation of the employer-employee control, like status reports to the employer or the performance reviews, like Brian just pointed out, training equipment and technical support provided by the employer to the employee and client verification of the employer's right of control. And by the way, when I spoke recently with Jeff Gorski, who is the chief of the U.S. Department of State Visa Office, chief of regulations legislation, and Brian Hunt, who is the deputy chief, they actually pointed out to us that the reason they give so much deference or respect to USCIS memos uh, with respect to H-1B, for example, issues, is the USCIS is the main agency in charge of immigration interpretations of issues. So it can cut both ways. So they're like, hey, if it benefits you, we give you the benefit of doubt. If it cuts against you, uh, we basically have additional screenings and you know, investigate more carefully the employer-employee control issues. And in, in that same um, AILA conference that she was referencing to, the Department of State attorneys mentioned that the highest recent trend in hiring by Department of State is fraud investigators. So the $500 that are paid with every H&L petition, that money is partially funding Department of State to hire more investigators who are looking for fraud in the process of visa applications. So they have more ability and more workers and more time to look for fraud. So there's these two different balancings. They're, they're honoring CIS, but they're also doing their own fraud investigations, which is causing delays. Right, right, right. I'm sure that excites companies and makes them very happy to know that all of the fees they're paying, they're helping to hire more fraud investigators that are looking for stuff. And as I think at one of the ELA conferences, someone from ELA pointed out that because we've hired fraud investigators, we're somehow, somehow or the other, we're going to try and find fraud, even if none exists, which is, of course, very, very troubling for you all as employers and businesses and companies, for all of us, for that matter. So Dana, we know we've all been seeing blue sheets returned by the, U, by the U.S. consulates with the word checked off, the number 221G. What does 221G mean and why is it issued and what, does, you know, what can the employer or individual provide? Right. A 221G is a, is a visa refusal, but it essentially covers a wide range of things where they don't feel that they can issue a visa this time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to eventually get one. Some of the 221Gs are announcing that the case is going to be delayed for administrative processing. They're not asking the individual for anything or the employer for anything. They're just saying, we need to look at this further. And that could be, as Ryan mentioned, something related to fraud. There could be a flag on the company or a hit. Uh, it could be something about the individual with a, a, a hit on their name or just some other information in the system that's causing the consulate to say, wait, 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 we can't do this right now. We need to check this out further. Um, the, the problem with that is that it's just a generic thing. You don't really, really know what's going on. And that processing can take an incredible amount of time. Um, the other 221Gs that people are seeing are the ones that we've been discussing with the request for a whole laundry list of documents. And these documents are, again, essentially in H-1 context, the same documents that the employer had to provide usually to the USCIS uh, to get the case approved. And when you're talking about deference, it would be nice if they would give deference to the fact that USCIS already looked at all of this and approved the H-1. 
Uh, but sometimes there's been a lag time between the approval and, and the visa. So they're looking for the information um, specific to the employer, which typically is going to be show me the, you know, the contracts, the trail of contracts between the consulting company and the mid-vendor and the end client. They often are going to want to see the information about the other employees, actually sometimes just the H-1 employees uh, or sometimes just the foreign nationals and sometimes all employees, show me who's working for your company, uh, prove to me that they've been, you know, the consul is going to want to know their immigration status and all the payroll record information to show that there's been compliance all the way around. So it's not enough to just comply and pay the one individual that's showing up at the consulate. They're going to look at the big picture to see whether this employer is likely to comply generally. Um, they, with that, they want tax documents and, um, again, and, and just a whole laundry list of the types of stuff that typically you're going to have shown some of that in connection with the H-1. Right, right. And sometimes we found that extremely long delays like the 221Gs that are issued uh, could result in the consulate deciding at some point, even though they may have caused the delay by not getting back to the, uh, to the company or to the individual employee, that they could actually end up often closing the case after 12 months because most consulates usually keep, whether it's an immigrant or non-immigrant visa, they tend to keep it open for kind of 12 months, and then they say, sorry, you want to apply, come back again, pay the filing fee, pay, file, fill out a new form, uh, and whether it's an H-1B or H-4 or L, they after they return it to the USCIS for investigation and possible revocation. Um, so it's, it's stuff that you need to be aware of, so sometimes it's beneficial to keep reminding them and sending them emails saying, please, what's going on with my file through the company, through your lawyer, through the legal net, uh, Department of State visa office as well. Right. And, and actually, what I see more commonly with that is that the delay, when we're talking about consultants, the delay at the consulate means that whatever their project is, they can't hold that open for that person. I mean, employers realistically can only keep a job open so long. And when you're talking about contracts with end clients, they have to meet that and put somebody else in there. So as a practical matter, this causes huge problems for individuals. And I did want to mention really quickly, since we're talking about visa problems, and one little fundamental thing that we, everybody should think about before they even go to the consulate is ask themselves, do I really need a visa? Because people often think when they switch companies that they need to get a new H-1, but that's generally not the case. And that always should be run by your lawyer before you even go to figure out, do I even need this or can I use what I have? That's an excellent point, Dana. Actually, that's true. Most people assume that because it had the endorsement of the prior company, they need it. But in fact, you can use the old visa as long as you have the new H-1B or L-1 visa, the petition approval, you can then go pick up the visa stamp. Uh, you don't need to pick up the visa stamp unless it, uh, the visa has already expired. You can just get a new I-94 at the port of entry or this by the CBP. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears. We're going to speak a little bit about L-1 visas. There's something called the L-1 blanket petitions that many of you are familiar with. Uh, basically, once you get a blanket approval, if you meet certain conditions because you're a very, very large employer with thousands of employees or you know branch operations around the world, or minimum 25 million in annual sales, a whole bunch of factors, then you can transfer a large number of L1 transferees from the same company using the blanket. But what this does is then the consulate begins to wonder why so many people are coming from abroad to the US with such high unemployment. 
uh, in the United States. So it's really important to prepare the visa applicants for the visa interview, to explain their eligibility, to explain what specific specialized knowledge they have. Because if the person goes into the consulate and says, oh yeah, I just do regular programming, the consulate's going to be great. Well, you're not specialized knowledge. I'm denying that visa. So you absolutely need to show that. Um, the L1B specialized knowledge, the applicants need to, to be able to distinguish their knowledge from that of their other colleagues or employees, co-workers in the company. Third, if they're working at a third-party work location, uh, the officer needs to ascertain the actual work location and the people who exercise control over the work and the duties of the L1B applicant. Not that different than the whole right to control in the H1B context. And the, the next part is the L1A for senior executives or managers. Same thing, the consular officers do look into the experience of the applicant and the proposed position of that person in the U.S. Is that person really coming to work here as a senior executive or manager or just coming to do some routine, uh, you know, work like a programmer or a software engineer? They have to be managerial or executive for the L1A as opposed to the L1B, which is for specialized knowledge worker. Uh, right. And the problem that, that a lot of employers are seeing on the L1B specialized knowledge professionals that come in under the blankets is that it, it really, um, the consulate is interpreting this where it's not really enough to just have specialized knowledge about the company in a general sense. They want to see that the person is a key employee. They know something specialized about the company, but they're really sort of special and beyond the normal person who's just been working there for a year or so. And that's why it becomes problematic if companies are bringing in a large number, because how can you have a huge percentage of your workforce that is key and special? Right, exactly. Except that if a company has 5,000 employees, then if it's five, less than 5% coming in, at least one has the argument to make that you're on the top 5%, but they're saying that's not good enough either. They're sort of giving people a hard time right. in a lot and, of and, and, Right, and there are people that are obviously, there are companies that have very technical work that's being done and you could have a fair number of people that had narrow expertise and, and needed to be brought in for a short term. But it's just an issue to be aware of for, for companies with the, bl the blanket owls uh, that their people should be very well prepared and understand these issues and be able to explain them when they're asked at the consulate. Absolutely. Um, now, we often hear of SAOs or security advisory opinions. We see the sheet issued by the consulate saying security opinion, and people say, how long will it take? What does this mean? Why is it given to me? You know, I'm not a terrorist. Why is this happening to me? So can you explain a little bit about security advisory opinions, Dana? Right. The security advisory opinions occur when the consular officer sees that the individual's work or their background uh, is it involves a, a potentially sensitive technology or dual-use technologies. And the technology alert list um, checks, they're, they're called Mantis checks, where to request this, this security advisory opinion. And the problems that we see with that is that there are a lot of technologies that, again, have, have dual use. And the technology list has a, a long list of, of things that are included that have many, you know, innocuous uses. Uh, I mean, it's everything from, you know, pharmacology, uh, immunology, toxins. Uh, there's things with material science, uh, just all sorts of things that are used for other purposes. But, you know, the, the consular officers obviously are not scientists, and so th if it, it looks like it could be on there, they're, they're likely to want to check further. Uh, they 
issue a security advisory opinion questionnaire focused on the person's background, their education, their research, uh, what work they're going to be doing, etc. And then this review generally is supposed to take about four to 12 weeks, but sometimes I've seen them take longer. Um, individuals that are engaged in this type of work can anticipate it and need to just either delay or avoid their travel if it isn't urgent, or just allow for the fact that they could be stuck outside the country for several months. Yeah, they usually say four to 12 weeks, but then sometimes we've seen people who've been stuck for months and months. And as Dana was just pointing out, I mean, common areas like chemical engineering, because it can be used both for good and not so good purposes, the consulates are very nervous. And I know we don't talk about the Department of State, uh, but we have talked about it previously about the Department of Commerce, uh, export, li export control license issue. Um, but it's a very important issue. So what the government says, what the U.S. Department of Commerce says, is that if you, as a private company, are hiring somebody to work on an H-1B or an L-1, that really, by law, because that person is a foreign citizen or foreign national, not a U.S. citizen, in order for that person to come and do work in America, that the, that government of that country is supposed to, and the U.S. Department of Commerce is supposed to give that person an export license to do the work, then you as a company must wait. Even if the H-1 petition is approved and now you're paying this person the full H-1 salary, you're now required to wait for this Department of Commerce export control license to be issued to the company before the person can actually start doing the H-1B work that was mentioned on the H-1 petition. Many, many companies are clueless about it. It's become more common now in the last, I would say, three to five years where people are at least aware of it, and we've discussed the, it before. The new H-1 form asks questions about it now, so companies are going to have to become more aware of that issue. Good, good. I'm glad they had changed the form because I think without that form change, people were blindsided by that whole issue of export control licenses. And, uh, you know, I've been to multiple conferences where they're focused for a whole day just on export control licenses and what to do. Uh, it's fa I mean, it's very, very complex. The whole visa arena is very, very complex. So, so let's now switch to special issues dealing with information technology or computer science kind of consulting companies or consultants, or if you're working, if your employees are working in other sites besides the company's own headquarters. We also have a lot of frequently asked questions and answers provided um, on our website on Murti.com and the Murti India office, MurtiIndia.com. So, Brian, let's start with you. How important is it for the company, uh, which has, cons you know, where they're, who are consulting companies, to provide the client contract or the end client letter? It's becoming crucial at this point, Sheila, because especially with the January 2010 memo, consular officers are now getting more experienced with these third-party work locations, and they are asking for three letters. They want a letter from the Human Resource uh, Department of the employer laying out the job duties, the location, what, you know, how the control is going to be exercised, but they are becoming much more adamant that they want end-client letters. So even if you got the H-1B petition approved without the end-client letter in the U.S., the, the consular officer may ask your employee, I, I want a copy of a letter on the letterhead from the end client customer, and I want that to match the contract that you have to provide showing the connection between the employer and the end client. And if there's a mid-vendor involved, you might have to provide more than one contract to satisfy that consular officer and get that H visa approved. Aha, uh -huh, okay. And I'm sure many of you are already seeing RFEs or denials or questions on end client letters 
And if it's not available, then what are the alternate kinds of documentation? A good lawyer who's creative, like we at the Murthy Law Firm, can really guide you and say, okay, these are possible alternatives that could work. Um, ideally, you're obviously better off with the end client letter, Dana. Um, I know we want to be mindful of time, and we, we're almost 25 minutes, mm -hmm. and we like to wrap up between 30 and 40 minutes, but we're not even halfway through, so let's keep plugging along. Uh, so what if, what if the company has employees that work at third-party work locations? Uh, will this require additional documentation under the Neufeld memo? Right, and, and we do have a lot of information about this on, on our website at murthy.com, and any employer who's in the, you know, the IT consulting industry should get a lot of advice about this. It's not something you can summarize in, in you know, a minute. But yes, absolutely, they should expect to produce more documentation about the control and supervision, detailed documents with the, the reviews of the individual and all the feedback between the individual and every other way that the contracts and the letters, both from the end client and the letters that are related to your, the individual's employment, uh, contracts, et cetera, that should all be available and they can expect to provide it with, with their H-1 petitions and then they can also expect to have to provide it at the consulates. Um, and we also have a reminder to anyone listening that if you provide documents to the consulate, be aware that it doesn't always end there. If they have questions about you know, whether these documents are proper, they can investigate further and make contact with the mid-vendors and the end clients to verify that everything's accurate. So everything needs to be accurate. Okay, good. And what about benching issues, Brian? I know that this is a sort of a hot-button issue for the consular officers. They're always concerned and saying, did you get paid? Did we, were you benched? Were you kept, you know, made to sit without getting any pay while you were supposedly supposed to be an H-1B employee? Will this cause any trouble during the visa application of the consulate? It depends on who um, would be responsible for the benching. If it's a prior employer, and this is a new employer with a new H-1B petition that was recently approved, if you weren't paid or if the employee was not paid in the, the past a year ago and it's a new company, it should not be a problem. But you still need to have your employee take with him or her the pay stubs for at least the last six or eight months. But the consular officers have gotten more experienced in the last several years. They're looking for benching. They know what the word benching means. And we've seen cases where Department of Labor investigations in the U.S. have caused consular officers to ask really detailed questions about pay. And the opposite has happened, too, where consular officers have been looking through pay records, asking questions, found that someone was benched and did not leave the U.S., and that has caused an investigation by Department of Labor in the U.S. So it's going back and forth. The government agencies are sharing information. But the employees need to be paid, and if there's a reasonable excuse why the person was not paid, if the person was on uh, FMLA leave for a pregnancy, if the person left the U.S. and went to India for three or four months, they don't have to be paid, but you need to document that reason with HR records and maybe even a letter from the employer. Okay. And so also, if the person was on maternity leave or had taken personal time for dealing with a family situation, uh, then the proof of that with a letter from the employer or the employee under affidavit saying, I had asked for time off uh, to explain why there's a variation between what the H-1B wage should be and what was actually mentioned on the year-end W-2 for that employee uh, would really be helpful to show and to keep it at the back uh, if the person needs to do it. Uh, briefly touching upon administrative processing delays under 221G and how one could try to expedite that process. Obviously, your best never getting a 221G by answering all of the questions at the interview, responding efficiently, being prepared for every possible variation, and being able to look the officer right in the eye 
and be very professional and say, yes, this is why there's a discrepancy. This is why I don't have paperwork. This is why this is correct. Everything that's being done is correct. I'm qualified. Your work experience letters, your education documents, your employer documents, your W-2s, your pay stubs, um, the company's you know, photographs, the premises, whatever documents are so you can preemptively prevent that. If you end up getting a 221G, as we talked about, it can take weeks, it can take months if you're un unlucky, and the employer can continue to contact uh, the, 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 the consulate directly. Your attorney can con contact the consulate. Um, and an email from the employer explaining the immediate need for the beneficiary services can also be helpful to try and expedite um, having the person come over. They don't always give that deference, but they will take that into consideration. If the visa is not issued after two or three months, one may need to go hire somebody um, like a law firm. And I know we've had a lot of experience in trying to push people and trying to do it. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily completely a legal issue because there's a great deal of discretion with the consular officers in such situations. Dana, coming back to the issue to, with you about the change of status, if it's actually been denied, after, uh, the, if there's a change of status denial after the I-94 expiration date and the person had to take a little bit of time to depart the U.S., will this cause any problems with the visa? Right. And the answer to that really is, is maybe yes, maybe no. And with this, really, when people are, have issues in their history where there are status problems, uh, they really should get some legal advice before going to the consulate there often if it's a, if it's a short period of time there may not be a legal bar to the reentry and it might be okay um, if there have been gaps or possible violations the individual needs to be able to explain that situation in a reasonable manner um, most of the time if there is something minor and it's understandable uh, the consulate will probably overlook it but the key there is to get advice to act quickly not to linger when there's a problem uh, you know, frankly, I think if people are here long enough, my experience is that, that something's probably going to go wrong. The consulate have seen people, you know, all day with, with some history issues. But you do have to know what you're doing, and you have to be able to explain yourself. Okay. Brian, what additional delay should the employer expect while the applicant is applying for the visa? There are security checks that the Department of State is required to do for the visa adjudication process. So before they can approve an H visa and L visa, they have to go through certain steps. And Dana is very experienced with the security advisory opinion. She already did a good job describing that. The only thing I would add to her comments is that if your consultant is working on a project that involves a federal government agency, if they're working in Washington, D.C. or the suburbs, that federal project may cause the requirement for a security advisory opinion to be issued before that H visa or L visa is approved. The other two areas where we see delays, one is the PIM system, which is a requirement that the Department of State verify the approval of the petition in the U.S. That can sometimes lead to delays. And also there is the name check problem that we see in all kinds of different arenas. If someone has a very common Muslim name like Muhammad or Ahmed, that may cause a delay because the government has to make sure that this person has the, the right birthday, the right place of birth. So those three areas can cause delays outside of what we've already discussed here. 
Okay, good point. And, and generally, the PIMS, the Petition Information Management System, it's supposed to already be, the approval is supposed to be in the Department of State visa database, but sometimes it isn't already put in, and so that's what causes that week or 10-day delay in trying to kind of prod them and ensure that it was, the approval was issued. Dana, what if the employee will be assigned to work on an internal development project located at the company's headquarters? Right, and internal development projects... There's a natural skepticism about this because when the USCIS first started asking for end client letters, etc., a lot of companies that didn't have all that documentation would kind of claim that there was an internal development project and perhaps they didn't have much of or any internal development project. So when people really are assigned to this, again, they can expect sort of a natural skepticism and they better be able to prove that there really is such a project. So the consular officers tend to want to see the company's federal tax returns, and if those don't reflect uh, that there's any sale of goods, such as you know the, the product that's being developed, uh, then they might issue a 221G asking for more evidence about the project. Uh, they can choose to deny the visa and return the H-1 petition for revocation, noting that there's no evidence that there's any ongoing sale of goods. So... If there is a legitimately a, an internal development project, but the tax returns aren't going to show a sale yet because you haven't gotten to that point, then I would suggest putting in some more proof about where that project stands and, you know, again, being able to verify when that When the real. sale is expected, right. when it's happening. Because if it's absolutely legitimate and honest, the problem is sometimes people just say, we have internal projects to try and avoid the whole end client letter because they can't get it. And so you, right. that's what the comp, the consular officers But these projects really do take a long. I mean, even when you have a real project, it doesn't happen in a day. They do take a long time. So it very well could be that your last year's tax return won't show any sales. You didn't get that far last and year. And you don't have to convince me. Our internal immigration software, which we call Immigration Matters, it's been still being worked on after 17 years. I mean, we did have a prototype out, <laughs> you know, but it's extensive. It's detailed. It has unique landing pages. It has a ton of fabulous cutting-edge information to help the employer and employee obtain information on a regular basis. Um, So some of the other additional documents that should help uh, an employee to obtain the visa by by you as a company providing the information, if you're a company, would really be companies in corporation documents, a notarized list of employees, the certified tax returns, bank statements, and quarterly wage reports for all states, Etc. in order to avoid delays. It's almost like you're preemptively providing the information and documents um, usually requested after a 221G soft refusal. And uh, we're, we're, we are mindful of the time, so uh, we're going to go with the last question with Brian and then wrap up. Uh, if the visa application is denied, is the petition automatically revoked by USCIS, Brian? No, it's not automatically revoked, but we are seeing an increase in the number of cases where there is a visa denial and the visa applicant will get a written denial and then the Department of State consular officer will send back the petition to USCIS with some notes and a recommendation for investigation. If this happens, there's two problems. One is that the USCIS will issue a notice of intent to revoke, and that gives the company the opportunity to give evidence and explain why the consular officer was wrong and why the company is legitimate, why the work is fine. But the problem is this takes time. So it may have been a 221G delay to begin with. The employee may have been stuck in India and China at a different location. Then the company gets their petition returned back to the USCIS. The USCIS will do some investigation, issue a NOR, and it's all taking months and months and months. So at that point, 
point, your employee has been stranded for a long time, it may be time at that point to contact a creative lawyer who can work with a company, maybe do a new petition, find a problem that was in the old petition and solve that. But if you're not going to have your employee for six or eight months, as Sheila has already talked about, that may cause problems for the business. So if there is a, a return of the petition to the U.S., it's going to take time and you're going to have to address those problems. Great. Thank you, Brian. Uh, well, as always, I think we've had a fantastic discussion that you've been able to enjoy and partake and hopefully learn some terrific ideas with Dana, Brian, and myself. Uh, we're always delighted and honored to help you, your business, your employees, your company, anybody, your family, your relatives. Uh, please take advantage of the services. We have tons of useful and free information on Murthy.com in articles. We also have the Murthy Immigration Services Private Limited available on MurthyIndia.com that can guide you and your family. God forbid there are visa delays or denials abroad. And it's very, very common to get visa issuance approvals even after one or two times of the person being denied a B1 or an F1 by establishing and showing the strong family financial ties with H1s. Luckily, they enjoy dual intent. So we don't have that issue. But still, we have a whole bunch of other issues that Dana, Brian, and myself have discussed with you. Again, it's always an honor and pleasure to continue to help you. You know the best law firm in the world to use on immigration matters, Murthy.com, Murthy Law Firm. And from all of us here, have a terrific rest of the day. Thank you so much for participating today.